From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Recently, Governor Newsom signed a bill that would phase out privately operated detention centers in California that have contracted with U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement. This was on the heels of the state audit report that exposed some of the shortcomings that existed in those facilities. These detention centers, however, are part of a bigger issue surrounding immigration. Today, we'll look at both issues. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. As well as the Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Dewey Square Group, Comcast Financial Agency, Nossiman LLP, Sagasser Watkins & Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital. Welcome. California and the Trump administration have been at odds over immigration policy. One point of contention is occurring at California's immigration detention centers. Our guest is Dan Moraine, uh, editor of What Matters from Cal Matters, uh, which is a summary of state politics. Very good. I, I think it's fantastic. I hope people do sign up for it. Um, but welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you. For a little plug there for you. Me. Absolutely. <laughs> so recently, uh, you noted uh, that just as the legislature was considering some bills uh, that, quote, would toss a monkey wrench into Trump's immigration policy, unquote, a Kaiser Health News report raised questions about California's largest detention center. What did they find? Well, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, the, the, the federal government has inspected um, these ICE facilities in the past mm -hmm. and found not too many problems. Yeah. Kaiser looked at um, some inspector general reports on on these same facilities and found significant problems. Yeah, yeah. So the, these are you know two people too long in solitary, not enough mental health care, um, all the problems you find in in prisons. Right. They found in right. these not, state, not, not state detention. Entirely surprising. Yeah. You know, you noted that the legislatures responded with some bills aimed at battling the uh, Trump administration's immigration policy, most notably. AB 32 regarding uh, private uh, or for-profit prisons. What's being proposed? Well, the, the proposal is to is to prohibit private prisons in California. So this would be th this this would prohibit the state from contracting with private prisons. It also would prohibit the federal government from operating private prisons or contracting with private prisons in California. I'm not sure that that's legal, but that's what the proposal is, and it's a, it's a bill that's pending on Gavin Newsom's desk right now. Yeah, there, there, there's not a lot of prisoners in private prisons. I think I, I, found, I read that 4,000 prisoners in, in private prisons, but the reason for that was uh, the state situation with the overcrowding in prisons that led to a court decision that said, hey, listen, the, the, the state prisons are so overcrowded that you're violating the constitutional rights of the inmates. Um, is there any concern that um, that this, if you have a bill like this, that it's going to somehow unnecessarily tie the state's hands when it comes to overcrowding? What happens if overcrowding happens again? Well, that's exactly the argument of the operators of private prisons and the advocates of private prisons, that that these are a necessary escape valve. If, if um, California prisons get too crowded, you can put people in private prisons. The California sheriffs are opposed to this bill, and one of the reasons they're opposed to this bill is that it would it would hamstring them. Um, you know, jails are under a lot of pressure. There was a story in the San Diego Union Tribune this past weekend about uh, all the deaths in San Diego County jails. So, so there are issues with private prisons, and there are issues with 
publicly operated prisons. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that since realignment, there's been a shift from state prisons to county jails. By the way, I didn't realize that prisons are only state and county jails are county. Um, but you've, as you move those people from state prisons to county jails, those county jails weren't necessarily set up for those long-term holds. Not at all. They're set up for to hold people pending pending trial. They're set up to handle people for up to a year misdemeanors. Now there are people who are doing multiple years in county jails. One of the big problems with county jails is they don't have mental health beds. Um, and, uh, and, and so this is an issue. It's an issue in San Diego. It's an issue in Merced. It's an issue in several um, counties around the state is what do you do with the increased number of mentally ill inmates, about 30% of the jail population. Wow. Um, it's also, the, it should note that AB 32 does have some exceptions to it, right? One of the exceptions it does talk about is if there's overpopulation, uh, court-ordered uh, way to deal with pop the population cap in California uh, prisons, and it only lasts until 2028. So right. there is a, a sunset provision on it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is the governor going to sign it? Um, well, I think that the governor wants to sign it. The governor made really clear in his State of the State speech, or State of the State or maybe his inaugural speech, that, uh, that he wanted to end private prisons. So, I, so he's sort of obligated. That said, it's complicated, and, and I think the more one thinks about it, the more complicated it becomes. If you're an ICE detention facility, you're housing people who are, who are facing deportation, do you want them housed in California near their court, near their family, or do you want them housed in Arizona? Okay. And if they're housed in Arizona, how do you get how do you get counsel? How do you how do you get attorneys to to visit them? It's complicated. It, it, it usually is. I want to thank Dan Moraine <laughs> from CalMatters for being here. Up next, uh, all of this has got the state auditor looking at taking a closer look at the situation. Her findings next. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Recently, the state auditor took a close look at local county detention centers that have contracted with the Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement to house detainees. The state auditor, Elaine Howe, is our guest and can talk about those findings. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So, um, we know that immigration is a federal responsibility, but could you give us a little background on the federal immigration system? Sure. I mean, a lot of people have heard of ICE, and ICE is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they really are responsible for um, immigration and customs enforcement within the boundaries of the United States. Okay. There is the Border Patrol, there's Homeland Security, but ICE, which was the focus of the audit that we did, is really responsible for detaining individuals within the United States. Okay. So there's something called a Flores Settlement Agreement. Um, how is, does that impact. And then there's also the Department of Justice talking about a zero tolerance policy that impact family separations. How does that all work together? Right. So the, the settlement you're referring to, the Flores settlement, is an agreement that the United States had where we will not, um, if we have unaccompanied children, okay. so these are children that don't have a parent or a legal guardian associated with them, so they need to be uh, put in an appropriate setting as far as being detained. That's been in the news a lot lately, uh, right. the, the problems with that. And right. then you have, but then you have the zero tolerance policy by the Department of Justice. How does that impact? Right, the zero tol tolerance policy that the Trump administration back in 2018 started enforcing was saying we have zero tolerance, we're gonna start detaining all kinds of individuals. And what happened in that situation is 
children were taken away from their parents because okay. parents and children would not be detained in the same facility. So now you have an increasing number of unaccompanied children because they've been taken away from their from their parents. And they've stopped that policy recently. The federal government's right. changed, changed that policy. Correct. So uh, how did uh, immigration uh, how did immigration detention centers work? Those contracts works. Where are they? Um, in place, et cetera. Right. There, there are a variety of contracts in the state of California. At least there were. Some have been uh, eliminated, and, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But there are contracts. ICE has to contract with these detention facilities. But what they, what they did is they contracted with cities and with counties. Okay. Um, and the reason they did that is under federal rules, similar to state rules, if you're going to uh, enter into a contract, typically you competitively bid that contract. But if you're contracting with another government entity, a city or a county, you don't have to go through a competitive bidding process. So Sounds ICE, like a workaround. Exactly. ICE contracted with a city, which then the city would turn around and contract with the private entity. Okay, so how does the federal government monitor those facilities then? Well, they don't do a very good job of okay. it. At least when we conducted the audit, we found that ICE does have a responsibility because they, they are responsible for these individuals who are being detained in these private facilities. Mm -hmm. um, so they should be monitoring. Now, there is an inspector general uh, for Homeland Security uh, that does look at and some They're of using the private, a private company, too, to monitor as well, right? Right. ICE actually uh, contracted with a private company to go in and monitor the facilities, look for, you know, conditions that are substandard as far as safety, looking for medical conditions, you know, are they getting medical mm -hmm. uh, care, appropriate care, those sorts of things. But the inspections were not very well done. The contractor for ICE basically said things look good. Yeah. The IG goes in and says, no, there were some serious concerns here in these facilities. Well, let me ask you this. We've heard a lot about California's opposition to uh, much of what's happening at the federal level, sanctuary cities, for example. Mm -hmm. um, has the state tried to limit immigration detention in California? Right. Recently, the, the state of California legislature uh, passed some legislation and enacted some bills that says if you have an existing contract uh, a city or county, you cannot renew that contract or you certainly cannot enter into new contracts for this particular purpose. So the state of California is really trying to clamp down on this particular situation. In addition, they gave the Attorney General uh, strong authority to go into these facilities and assess the conditions within each of those facilities. Uh, I'm, not, I'm thinking the federal government doesn't like that. The federal government is not real happy about that, absolutely not. So there's a conflict then between the, the state attorney general and the Department of Justice, federal Department of Justice? I think so, but the, Fe the uh, Department of Justice actually did go in. They had to complete their first report in March of this year, so they did go into some of these facilities last fall and, and early this year and put out a report uh, to the public and certainly to the legislature and identified some very serious deficiencies in these facilities. It's interesting because I was reading your report that says that the Board uh, of State and Community Corrections are supposed to establish minimum standards, right? So we've got a state agency. Right. Um, we've also got social services is supposed to be right. involved in inspecting these facilities at least once every two years. Is that happening? Right. Department of Social Services is responsible for inspecting facilities, typically foster homes, because okay. some of these kids are not going to be placed into a detention juvenile justice facility if they don't have any criminal background. They're just a child that's been separated from a parent right. and they don't have a legal guardian in the United States. They may end up in a foster home. That's where social services has a responsibility to vet foster parents, group homes, those sorts of sure. things. And they should be inspecting those facilities. They don't necessarily do as good a job as they should. 
um, but that's what their responsibility is. Okay, well up next we're going to take a look at the report's findings and the lack of oversight, proper oversight. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, we're talking with California State Auditor Elaine Howell about a report her office did concerning city and county contracts with ICE uh, concerning uh, detention centers. So your report uh, notes that, quote, Essentially, the cities act as pass-through entities between ICE and private operators by paying the same amount to the private operators as the cities receive from ICE, unquote. It appears that this may be an attempt for private operators to kind of work around federal procurement rules. Can you explain that whole situation? Right. As I, I discussed a little bit earlier, so typically if you're going to contract with a private entity, a government, state of California, the federal mm. government, you need to go through a competitive bidding process, giving all kinds of vendors the opportunity to bid for that particular project or right. to provide that service. What ICE did is ICE approached local governments in California mm -hmm. and said, we want to enter into a contract with you, and then you will end enter into a contract with this specific vendor. And it allowed ICE to circumvent competitive bidding processes. The mm. worst example, and we have an example in the audit report where uh, one of the private companies, Geo, is right. one of the private companies that has a facility, approached the city of Bakersfield and said, we want to contract with you, you contract with ICE, and then you'll get an administrative fee. Bakersfield said, not interested, so Geo went to the city of McFarland, even though the facility is in Bakersfield. Right. So it really was a workaround by the private vendor working with ICE to get cities and counties to, to um, contract. You know, I, I've, I've done work as a federal mediator, so I have to go through that procurement process. And I will tell you, it's quite lengthy mm -hmm. and quite rigorous. So mm -hmm. I can see why the private operators wanted to see if they get around it somehow. Right. Um, I assume the cities were doing this because there was some money to be had. Right. So the, there's a significant amount of money that's passed through to the private facilities. Let's use Adelanto. City of Adelanto, for example, we looked at contracts. They had a five-year window that we looked at as far as contracts. There was passed through to private operators of about $250 million over those five years. On an annual basis, Adelanto is getting a million dollars basically just to, pass, to have a contract with that private operator and just to pass the money from ICE to... The and the way, the way they were doing vendor. that, right, they'd have an administrative fee. Right. And then there's a per-bed fee, even if anybody, right. if someone's not even in the bed. Exactly. That's the private operators are, are benefiting from that, because if they have 1,000 available beds, only 900 of those beds are filled. They're getting paid for 1,000 beds. And Adelanto, the city of Adelanto, is getting an administrative fee. Yeah, million and dollars the same thing was happening with, with McFarland. They were, they were right. picking up $35,000 a year. Um, you know, to administer, administer the contract. Absolutely. That's uh, correct. So there's some money to be had here. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me ask you this. Um, some of the examples of detention standards uh, that cities were required mm -hmm. to provide under mm -hmm. ICE contracts, I mean, ICE doesn't just contract with the city and say, do whatever you want. They've got standards that the cities have to comply with. What kinds of things are cities supposed to be doing to meet uh, ICE requirements? Sure. So there are a variety of different things you would expect a facility to provide. First of all, proper food, nutrition, mm -hmm. um, the basic essentials of life. So making sure that they have appropriate nutritional meals. Do they have access to medical care, dental care? Do they have access to attorneys or any legal you know, mm -hmm. um, providers that would assist those detainees? Um, are there other programs for prevention of suicide? Uh, because there were circumstances in, in at least one of the facilities where some suicides occur, some attempts occurred. So those are the kinds of services that these private facilities should be providing to the detainees. And it's up to the city and certainly up to ICE to make sure that those 
services are being provided. Yeah, but, but what you found in your report was, quote, cities have not exercised appropriate oversight of their contracts with private operators to house detainees. So what did you find? Right. We found the cities are doing absolutely no monitoring. Again, they're just essentially serving as a pass-through for the money and then collecting their administrative fee. They were not ensuring that the contract terms that they entered into with that private vendor, that private facility, uh, were being met. And in some cases, the contract terms were not very strong. So we didn't think the contracts were great in the first place. But when they did have provisions, the cities were not monitoring at all. They were saying, well, that's up to ICE um, and the federal government to make sure that these private So nobody's watching what's going on here? No. Not okay. doing a very good job of it. Okay. So your report states that there were some, quote, serious health and safety issues uh, at these contracted detention facilities, unquote. Like what? Well, as we said, and, and I think the, uh, the Attorney General, when his staff went into some of the facilities, found, you know, and the Inspector General for the federal government went in and said it was actually a facility that ICE's private vendor was monitoring, said, oh, this facility looks great. Okay. The Inspector General for the federal government for Homeland Security goes in and says, there are bed sheets hanging from the, from the windows. There's the att attempted suicides occurring. Uh, provision of medical care is not sufficient. They're basically drive-by medical. Oh, that person looks okay. Sure, they just walk, walk by and don't walk even... by and see if That's the, person, the medical examination. That's the medical examination. So those kinds of services were not being provided. Um, and ICE hit the vendor that ICE used, was not doing a good job. The IG went in, the, our attorney general went in and said, these facilities are not up to standard. It sounds like the city managers from your report didn't even know what was going on here. Right, again, serving as a pass-through, basically just a conduit for the federal government to contract with private facilities and a conduit to get the money to those private facilities. Mm. So up next, what can be done to improve the situation? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with California State Auditor Elaine Howell about a report her office did concerning city and county detention contracts with ICE. Um, so your report notes that, quote, counties incurred costs for housing deta detainees or unaccompanied children that exceeded federal payments, uh, unquote. What exactly did you find? Right. So this was a concern that members of the legislature that asked for the audit uh, were concerned that either state money or local money was being used to pay for these detentions. Um, the, de the detention facilities to house detainees. And what we found, for example, Orange County, and, and as we talked earlier, it's a per diem rate. Mm -hmm. While Orange County never went back and reassessed what their overall costs are to detain an individual, and their costs had increased. So they were using a per diem rate that was old. So they basically were using Orange County budget mm -hmm. money right. uh, to subsidize. Right. So the, some cities were actually making money, but some counties, because they hadn't really done a good job of, of seeing what exactly the costs were, were actually being underpaid by the federal government. That's coming out of the, the county general fund. That's exactly right. So other services in that particular county are suffering because, and in Orange County, it was $1.7 million uh, we identified. Contra Costa County, another county that had a contract, didn't include all of the costs. They didn't include medical costs in their per diem rate, which it could be a, a tremendous expense. So the counties, as you said, were not recouping all of their costs from the federal government for detaining these. Yeah, you were saying you're saying that some counties did not adequately monitor the financial impact of the ICE contracts, and um, one of them was the example you gave was uh, one city I can't remember where it was might have been might have been Orange County. I'm sorry, County it might have been Orange County. I think you said that they were charging 118 dollars a day, correct? And the actual cost was actually six dollars more a day, and that adds up. And lots of beds, lots of detainees. That money adds up fast, and they're at 1.7 million. That's absolutely right, Orange County. Yes, their their per diem rate. They needed to adjust it, and they did not. And 
there for. They, they basically subsidized. And it was also, you said Contra Costa County, uh, I think it was $3.4 million, but they neglected to include medical costs? That right. seems like it'd be a pretty right. so big thing they, to forget. Exactly. Particularly so, because under those contracts, you're supposed to provide adequate medical care. That's exactly right. So they did not make sure that their per diem rate that they were charging the federal government reflected all of their costs. And as you said, medical costs can be significant. If you Any employer that, knows that for right, sure, right? Exactly. Um, and they also, so you, you're finding in uh, Yellow County, um, one of the counties had 80% of their funding was from accounts on employee salaries and benefits. So right. they're, they're, you know, they were right. spending it on, on other things, it sounds like. Right, um, right. So let me ask you this. Um, what would you like to see cities that kind let's talk about cities for a second. When cities contract with ICE, what would you like to see them do uh, in terms of oversight, practices, et cetera? Right. So the cities need to make sure, first of all, if they do contract with these private sector uh, facilities, mm -hmm. make sure their contract language is strong, that the language does include all of the requirements, uh, providing nutritional food, providing appropriate medical care, um, counseling for suicide prevention, legal uh, access to legal services. Make sure those contracts are, are very strong as far as terminologies, and then mm -hmm. follow up to make sure that these uh, vendors are actually providing those services. Do some ty type of monitoring, or if the federal government is doing the monitoring, look at those federal reports that are coming out, and if things aren't getting fixed, because one of the problems we found is some of the deficiencies were identified by NIG, but there's no follow-up to make sure the deficiencies are corrected. Yeah, we've so got to have that feedback loop. Be, exactly. Yeah. So the cities need to be doing more if they intend to continue uh, having these kinds and of And the contracts. counties, too. I mean, they should be making sure that what they're charging is enough to cover their expenses. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So there's also the state legislature. What would you like to see mm -hmm. them consider to, in terms of addressing this issue? Well, we made uh, recommendations to the cities and counties, certainly, and we made similar recommendations to the legislature to modify state law to make sure that these federal inspections are occurring, that if these contracts continue, there's quarterly reporting, there's a quality control plan, uh, there's adequate follow-up to make sure that deficiencies that have been identified are corrected. So really strengthening, and by putting it in state law, that this monitoring needs to happen. Um, and these facilities, if they are going to continue to house detainees in California, need to be providing appropriate services to those individuals. And so, it's, and also when you're talking about detainees, it, right now they're not doing uh, detaining uh, unaccompanied children. That thing has been addressed, but that could come back. Uh, that's an issue right. the state has to consider. The other thing is the frequency of inspections, too. It's the, the number of times they're inspecting. Right, and, an and we talk about quarterly reporting, uh, periodic inspections, quarterly inspections of some of these facilities, certainly conducting follow-up. So you inspect a facility, and you've got to give that facility some time to fix the problem, but you need to go back so that that facility knows, okay, they identified a deficiency, they're going to be back in six months, so we, we need to get this fixed, um, rather than they're never going to come back. Just so out of curiosity, I'm just curiosity, and don't have to answer the question if, mm -hmm. if it's too far out there, but do you think these detention facilities run by counties are going to continue? Or are we going to see them going to kind of go by the wayside I think over time? Some, of the, some of the counties have already decided to cancel their contracts. I mean, right. Sacramento County, um, Contra Costa County, some of the cities have decided it's not worth it. Right. Uh, so we're no longer going to continue. When these contracts expire, we're done. We're not going to be in that in this business anymore. I guess we'll see. Well, I want to thank right. State Auditor Elaine Howe for joining us. Also, Dan Moraine from Cal Matters. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. The national debate on immigration is perhaps being most felt in California, home to nearly a quarter of the nation's undocumented immigrants. That's over 2 million undocumented immigrants, constituting more than 6% of the state's population. What is the impact on education, jobs, social services, and crime? And what about the plight of the Dreamers under DACA? 
the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, the ongoing debate about a path to citizenship, and the state sanctuary policy. We'll ask Laura Hill with the Public Policy Institute of California, Taryn Luna with the Sacramento Bee, and Dan Walters with CalMatters. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Immigration has been the center of national and state politics for some time now. There's been a lot of commentary, but what are the facts when it comes to immigration and immigration policies? Our guest is Laura Hill from the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California one of the, and one of the leading authorities, actually, on immigration issues. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's talk numbers. Um, how many undocumented immigrants call California home? The estimates are between about 2.4 and 2.6 million. Um, and that number is obviously pretty large. But that's uh, out of a population of, what, 39 million? That's right. They're about 6% of the population in California. Um, and nationally, there are about 11 million undocumented immigrants. So it varies from county to county, I assume. So which California counties have the greatest number and the greatest proportion of, of immigrants? Or un, well, let's say undocumented, specifically undocumented residents. Um, they actually kind of mirror the counties for immigrants as well. So, you know, our large counties have larger numbers of undocumented immigrants. So Los Angeles County is up there at the top. With yeah, and looking at your statistics, like 804, uh, I think it's 814,000 uh, undocumented. That's, that's quite a large number. That's right. Almost a um, million. That's right. But as a percentage of the county, it's actually not one of the highest, actually. Um, Monterey and San Benito counties are two counties that are more like 12% of their population is undocumented immigrants. And that's compared to about 6% for the state on average. And I'm guessing if you look at places like the San Joaquin Valley, it's going to be along those higher numbers. There are higher percentages in some of those counties. That's right. But the numbers of right. residents are obviously smaller. Right. But the percentage, right. percentage is quite large because they are attracted to certain industries like agriculture, for example. And so... Uh, the numbers will be larger. That's true, um, but Santa Clara County is actually right up there with about 10% of the population being undocumented. Can you explain why that is? Well, I think Santa Clara County um, has a lot of the industries that are popular among undocumented immigrants. There's uh, the service work, and there's also construction, um, and there can be some movement between agricultural settings like in Monterey and San Benito and um, different kind of hospitality things in it, Santa Clara. I, you know, it's kind of expensive to live there. I'm a little surprised. It is expensive to live there. Um, I'm not an expert on, on all of those issues, but definitely you hear stories about overcrowding and um, substandard housing all over the state. Or very, very long commutes. Or very long commutes. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it's interesting, uh, reading your, your materials, that, uh, the undocumented population is actually declining since 2007. You know, that probably surprised a lot of people. Uh -huh. It Why does because they're so popular, such a popular topic um, in the news these days. But yeah, the population is definitely down from the peak of 2007. And I think there are two things happening. One is fewer undocumented, undocumented immigrants are coming. Um, that probably started with the Great Recession from 2007 to 2009. There were fewer opportunities for work, and that's really the draw for most undocumented immigrants. Um, and the other thing that's happening is increased deportations. And that's not um, just a phenomenon with the Trump administration. That was happening with the Obama administration that's as right. well. That's right. That was happening then, too. So where are, they, where are these undocumented immigrants coming from, uh, to either the U.S. generally or California specifically? 
uh, where in the state are they coming no, or no, where what, are they coming from? What nations are they coming from? So um, they have largely been coming from Mexico, but recently uh, there's been a little bit of a change that's still the predominant sending country, but fewer undocumented immigrants from Mexico have been coming lately and that we've seen increases in numbers of undocumented immigrants coming from Central America and Asia. So that means in California right now, the percentage of our undocumented immigrants that are from Mexico is around 70%. Nationally, it's about 50%, and that's a decline from um, prior years. You were, you were mentioning earlier that the reason why undocumented immigrants come here is for economic opportunity, for jobs. Right. Um, what percentage of the California workforce uh, are undocumented workers? Are they also attracted? I'm assuming they're attracted to certain industries like ag and construction, et cetera. Yeah, they're about 9% of the California workforce. And recall, they're just about 6% of the California population. Um, and I think that's at least two things happening. One is the reason undocumented immigrants are coming right. is to work. So we shouldn't be surprised to see them kind of overrepresented in the workforce. Um, and second, undocumented immigrants are prime working age, they're much more likely to be in the 18 to 64 age range than Californians in general. I'm, I'm wondering, what if, how much unemployment exists with, un, with uh, undocumented? Is, there a, is it larger than the normal population or is it similar? Uh, that's a great question that I can't really answer off the it's top of It's probably hard head. to know yeah, because yeah. they have to report that, right? So that's kind of difficult. Yeah, the, so our estimates about undocumented immigrants and participation in the workforce come from national surveys by and large. Um, and so it's pretty hard to get down into the, the granularity of that in, in particular regions in California. Um, certainly, when we look from the flip side at um, employment and poverty, uh, during the Great Recession, we saw that Latino low-skill immigrants uh, were, you know, behind in terms of earnings, but that's a different thing than saying they were more than more unemployed. You know, one of the arguments is that undocumented immigrants are taking, you know, American jobs, quote unquote. Um, is that true? Lo undocumented immigrants are, by and large, quite low-skilled. So many have not graduated from high school, um, and English is not proficient for them in many cases. And so they're really not competing with most Americans or most Californians for the jobs that those folks are interested in. You know, another argument, I'll just end here, we've only got about 20 seconds left in the segment, that is government benefits. The, one of the arguments is they come here for government benefits. Is that true? Many California and, and federal benefits are not available for undocumented immigrants. U.S.-born children of undocumented immigrants are eligible for benefits, but okay, so it's they're kind of citizens. Yeah, it's, it, right, it's bifurcated. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, very good. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the children brought to the United States by undocumented parents. What happens to those folks? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, many undocumented immigrants live with family members who are legal residents. According to estimates by the Mitigation Policy Institute, more than 5 million children in the U.S. have an undocumented parent. Most of these children, 79%, are U.S. citizens, according to our guest, Laura Hill, from the nonpartisan PPIC. So these statistics indicate that a good number of children in California schools come from families with an undocumented immigrant. What are the numbers? It's about 12.3% of, um, of K-12 school children are undocumented in California, and that's probably over 800,000 students in the state. And that, that impacts, I'm, I'm guessing, the, the scores of, of, of some of those schools, because these kids are having probably more, a little more difficult time in school? Um, well, I, we don't look at them separately in mm -hmm. any of the data that's collected by the state. Um, many of them are likely to be English learners. Um, we do have a variety of curriculum in place to help English learners catch yeah, up. And then the state has been focusing on that uh, with the local control funding formula. The governor's made an attempt to, the legislature and the governor made an attempt to kind of fund those programs more. Let me kind of switch to, let's talk about DACA. Sure. Um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, been in the news a lot lately. Uh, can you briefly describe the program and the number of young people who are affected nationally and also in California? 
So nationally, it's about 800,000 um, young people who have successfully applied for DACA. And in California, it's something like 230,000 that have successfully applied. So again, we're at about a quarter or more of the um, undocumented immigrants that fall into the DACA category. A large number. It is a large number. And the DACA program, what it does is provides a way for young people who came to the United States while children, so before they turned 16, to apply for uh, protection from deportation and also allows them to be eligible for work permits. So many of these young people um, were able to come out of the shadows and work and continue their educations. Um, and it's not just those two requirements about age and uh, their arrival and uh, how old they are now, um, but they also have to demonstrate that they have not committed any kinds of crimes that disqualify them, um, and they need to have been continuing their education. But they have to provide this information. So you said they're coming out of the shadows. They now provide it. They've provided this information. And they're probably wondering, now what? If DACA ends, now the government has all this information. They know that they're here, you know, they're undocumented. Mm -hmm. I think they're worried for themselves and also for their family members, because many of them are with parents who are likely to still be undocumented. Yeah, so there gets to the whole issue of this ongoing debate about undocumented immigrants and the path to citizenship. It's mm -hmm. been hotly debated. Um, where are Californians on that issue? Californians um, now are uh, in favor of offering a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. I believe it's something like 68% of Californians that have said they favor a path to citizenship. Um, so Californians, you know, the state that has the most experience with undocumented immigrants uh, looks a little different from some other parts of the country. And, and that, you guys have been polling this for some time. Mm -hmm. And, and what's the trend line been over time? Has uh, has, have Californians become more amenable to seeing uh, undocumented have a pathway to citizenship? Has it gone down? Has it just stayed the same? I think it's been in recent years, it's been pretty steady. Um, and there are other questions that we've asked about um, should there be a way for citizens to be able, for undocumented immigrants to stay in the country? And it's been about 82%. And then this becoming a citizen question is about 68%. So they're not, they're not, they're not wanting to kick undocumented uh, immigrants out of, out of the country. They're not. Um, and in September, the survey actually asked if Californians were in favor of the protections afforded by DACA. And again, a majority of Californians answered that they were after it had been announced that the plans were to cancel it. Yeah, it's, it, yeah because you said the experience here is different. Also, a lot of these industries rely on it. You also mm -hmm. have you know, business groups and, and ag groups, for example, um, supporting uh, mm -hmm. immigration reform because their workforce comes from there. And the estimates that we've done in um, the state show that these are Californians across many, many communities. So these are neighbors, these are schoolmates, these are coworkers. Are we going to see these issues go away in the near term? Or this, this is going to be continuing on this conversation? Um, I thought when I started working on the issue, we were close to the end of it, you know, over a decade ago. And it doesn't well, feel like it. The last immigration reform was, what, 1986? That's the right. Major immigration reform. And, uh, it's that, been a little while. That was supposed to solve the issue, and, it, and I guess it didn't. It did so not. So we will be talking about it, it sounds like. Well, up I next, so. Up next, um, this, uh, immigration has been an active issue in the legislature. What passed, what didn't, and why? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Lawmakers at the state capitol spent most of the last year taking shots at immigration policies coming out of Washington, pledging to protect California's undocumented community with legislation of their own. Some were signed into law, some not. Our guest is Taryn Luna with the Sacramento Bee, uh, who has a front row seat, hasn't had a front row seat to the policy debates, and we're delighted to have her join us. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you for having me. So the signature law that came out of the capitol this year was SB 54, the state's sanctuary policy. It was hotly debated. Um, how would it work? 
So the state can do very little to curtail federal activities, uh, federal immigration enforcement within California, right? So the general idea is that they're focusing on limiting what state and local police uh, can do and how they can assist the federal government with um, immigration enforcement. So the bill um, makes it so that police can't inquire about someone's immigration status, they can't um, participate in border patrol activities, they can't be deputized as, deputized as immigration agents. Um, unless this someone is wanted on a federal warrant or they have committed one of more than 800 different crimes that are carved out in the bill. So that, that, was, a, that was a big addition uh, added by the governor at the governor's insistence. He increased that number of crimes that were uh, covered. Yeah, there were some 60 crimes that were kind of considered carve-outs initially. So if you committed one of these crimes, then a lot of these protections were kind of wiped away. The governor intervened and expanded that list to over 800 different crimes. That's quite an expansion. It is quite an expansion. It was really worried a lot of the advocates uh, who were kind of supporting the bill along the way. Um, and, it, you know, it, it allows you to... Um, notify the federal government if someone's being released and they have committed some of One these One of those crimes. 800 crimes or if they have a federal warrant. Yes, exactly. Um, so there were some groups that were opposed to this. Who were, were they and why were they opposed? Uh, the main opponent of the bill was the California Sheriff's Association. They largely didn't like the way that they thought it restricted their ability to enforce immigration violations or to help um, the federal government. They wanted to be able to continue to work on task forces. They argued that um, by saying that the uh, federal agents couldn't work with them in their jails, that it would then push people out and push them into the streets and go into communities and homes and things like that, and then kind of rounding up people who are generally law-abiding citizens who then, you know, kind of fall through the cracks. At the end of the day, though, I think it, was, it might have been in one of your articles, um, the uh, head of the California Sheriff's Association said that he thought that the governor dealt with the bulk of the problem uh, when he added these additional laws. Yeah, so we saw some early amendments that the sheriffs wanted, and it was a largely a strikeout of almost the entire bill. Um, in the end, Jerry Brown did remedy a lot of the different things that they wanted, but they still remained opposed. Um, they also, the LA Times at one point had reported that they were working with ICE to kind of uh, oppose the bill and to try to kill the bill. So mm -hmm. I think it was kind of a fundamental opposition in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, so there were other immigration laws uh, that were passed uh, and signed into law. What were some of the other laws that were signed into law this year? Uh, one is AB 450, which keeps federal authorities out of uh, private workplaces unless they have a judicial warrant. Another one, uh, SB 31, was meant to curtail Trump's uh, Muslim registry, which would prohibit public employees from providing information for a registry based on religion, national origin, or ethnicity. Um, another bill would have made it illegal, or which was passed, made it illegal um, for landlords to essentially uh, out your immigration status or threaten to out your immigration status. That's a way for someone, if they were complaining about their apartment or something like that, they say, better not complain or we're going to report you. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the water's leaking or whatnot, the, you know, and you can't really complain or do a whole lot about it. Um, there were also some other immigration proposals uh, that were passed by the legislature, but they were not signed into law, uh, or maybe even didn't pass both houses of the legislature. What were some of those that didn't make it? So some that didn't pass the legislature were kind of interesting. One was meant to kind of stop the border wall by uh, preventing the state from awarding contracts to any company that essentially provided goods or services to the border wall's construction. Uh, that didn't even pass the legislature. Um, it's almost like blackballing those companies. If they get involved, they make a bid, then they're out of the equation for state projects. Yeah, it was a Ricardo Lara bill, and that was kind of the general idea was, you know, if you take on these, you work with federal government for this uh, to build the wall, then you, you can kind of uh, 
count out all future state contracts. Right. Okay. Um, any other ones that were uh, were talked about in the legislature but didn't make it? Uh, another that didn't pass the legislature would have prohibited the disclosure of information that undocumented immigrants provide for uh, college grants, um, driver's license, medical care, and public services and things like that, which also failed in the legislature. You think we're going to see more of this uh, in the, the next uh, next year? I don't get the sense that lawmakers are done here. Um, I think that they'll push, continue to push next year. Some of these things that didn't pass, they've already promised to bring back in a different form next year. And that happens a lot. They, they bring it up in one year, doesn't make it, but they're, they're dogging about it. They'll bring it back the next year. The benefit of a two-year session, yes, you always <laughs> get a second shot. There you go. Well, thank you very much. Up next, we're going to talk about immigration politics with veteran political observer Dan Walters of Cal Matters. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Given the state's changing demographics, it's no surprise that immigration has become a political hot potato. But does what passes for good politics pass for good policy? We're joined by veteran political observer Dan Walters of Cal Matters. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. Um, so you've written that it's time for Californians to, quote unquote, take a chill pill when it comes to DACA and other immigration issues. Why? Well, I think it's becoming kind of an obsession with California politicians, and I think it'll become very evident in next year's elections that it's, all you're going to hear is Trump, 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 Trump. And, yeah, it plays well, with, particularly within the Democratic Party, particularly with Democratic Party uh, interest groups. Uh, but, look, California's got a lot of issues, uh, starting with the housing crisis, for example. And it's, it doesn't really, it's maybe gratifying and emotionally uh, satisfactory to do all this Trump, Trump, Trump stuff. But it doesn't get you there when stuff that Trump has nothing to do with housing crisis. He has nothing to do with a lot of the other issues that face California. We still have transportation problems. We still have education problems. We still have water problems. We have all sorts of things going on that have absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump. And it seems to me that the, the first responsibility of California politicians is to take care of California's issues and not just posture. Yes, they get some lots of national publicity. They get to go on national TV shows. They get to do this and that. And, but... What's that do for California? Well, the counter would be there's 200,000 Californians that are dreamers, for example, that are yeah. affected by DACA, so, and, and the families that are affected. It I'm not saying people. ignore the issue. I'm just saying put it in perspective. Yeah, and, and also, it's possible that the, the militancy in California, on, particularly on immigration issues, may be counterproductive. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Um, you talked about uh, sanctuary state, the sanctuary state issue and how that might come back and, and bite California. Uh, how so? Well, we have to keep our eye on the bottom line. The bottom line of all this should be some sort of immigration reform that makes those folks that are in California and other states uh, illegally, but they're otherwise law-abiding and productive citizens. There should be some pathway to legalization and perhaps citizenship, and that can only be done by Congress. California can't do that. It can try all it wants to to semi-legalize people, but they're not legal until the federal government says they're legal. And by taking the attitude that California has, it kind of invites backlash elsewhere in the country and in Congress. And, you know, it's, you kind of wonder sometimes whether people are waving this bloody shirt just to be waving the bloody shirt or they're really trying to do something about the issue itself and that the people, the people who are in the country illegally, undocumented, the dreamers and everyone else, maybe just being pawns in some gigantic political game. But remember, it's real life to them. It really affects their life. And the, uh, the, the goal should be to make life easier for them, not to just stir up political angst. You know, it seems like the immigration issue is something that's uh, 
dividing uh, business. Business and ag seem to be on one side of that equation, and the Republicans, some of the uh, more uh, populist wings of the, of the Republican Party seem to be on the other side of the issue. Is that going to split the California Republican Party? More than it's already split? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. It is, it, it is an issue that divides business and agriculture from, the, I guess, the, uh, the real true believing rib, red rock, red blood red Republicans, I guess we could say. Uh, but so that be, I mean, it, it, the business and agricultural position reflects the reality. The reality is we have several million uh, undocumented immigrants in California. They play integral roles in the California economy. We would be stuck in many respects, particularly agriculture. Yeah, you think about agriculture. Tourism, huge. Uh, people who work construction. in restaurants, construction, hotels. They're doing jobs that need to be done in the economy that don't pay very much money. And a lot of people are not going to be willing to fill that hole. So let's, let's just recognize it. And I think the business and, and uh, ag communities see that and they say, hey, let's get real here. And, and that is real. Uh, and uh, yes, it may divide the Republican Party, but so what? They're divided on other, yeah. all other issues <laughs> so as well. So the idealist versus the pragmatist, maybe. Um, so this hardline stance that, that some people in the Republican Party in California are taking, if they continue down that path, are they going to seal the fate of the Republican Party in California for another generation? More than it's already been sealed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they will. They'll, they'll completely, they'll isolate themselves more and more from the California mainstream and become less and less relevant as time uh, goes on. Uh, you know, the funny thing is these things turn very quickly. It's only been slightly over 20 years ago that uh, Democrats were worried that the immigration issue was going to backfire on them. And they were scampering to do things like cut off driver's license to illegal immigrants and so forth. So these things turn very quickly. But I think in this particular case, yes, the Republicans are on the wrong side, as it were, the, and, and will do nothing but suffer more losses because of it. You think it's going to temper, though, some of the Republican candidates' uh, positions on immigration as we go to the next election? I mean, they're looking at the demographics of their districts, and they're saying, maybe we can't take that hard line. Well, it already is. You have Republican congressmen from agricultural areas, for example, Mr. Valdeo and, and, and so forth, who are already uh, split from the party, I guess the party mainstream on that issue. They see the reality in their own districts. They see the reality in their own political fortunes that, that uh, Latinos are a large part of their constituency and, and, and they don't want to, uh, they don't want to uh, alienate them. So, I mean, you're already seeing that happen uh, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Well, I want to thank Dan Walters for Cal Madison uh, joining us, as well as Laura Hill from PPIC and Taryn Luna from the Sacramento Bee. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Matter Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Matty Institute. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. KMJ.